chapter 2. I'm going to uh, actually back up. I, I'm really I'm working towards two verses this morning, but I'm going to take a long, long-running start to it. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I'm going to do several readings in the Old Testament that I won't ask you to turn to, but then I will uh, direct your attention to chapter 1, and then we will uh, work our way into what these two verses that I, I want to direct your attention towards. I find that preaching from a very familiar passage like Luke 2 is more difficult than preaching from just any normal passage because um, it's it's so clear. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the clarity of the passage sometimes makes it difficult to, to preach or explain or uh, just teach through, but we will we will be there and we'll do our best to make make God glorified in our in our time together. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing once more. Father, we come to the, the time of your, the preaching of your word, and I pray that as has been prayed all week, that, that you would be magnified, that you would be made much of. I pray that as we open up your words, that our minds, our attention would not be on a man, not be on uh, anything that uh, it would be considered human thought or reason, but that all eyes would be on you. And so I pray that you would uh, take the preeminence in our time together, as as I hope that it has been already. And especially as we open up your word, this is the, the word that changes lives. This is the word that gave us life. So we pray that it would do its work in our hearts and in our minds, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, by way of an introduction, if you have ever had a Christmas that did not go according to your plan. I think we all have a plan for Christmas. We want uh, we want certain things to happen a certain way. If you watch uh, a lot of Hallmark movies, you kind of want the Christmas to end up that way, where it snows but nobody wears a jacket and it doesn't stick on the roads. Uh, the, all of the presents... Um, you know, you ever watch the commercials? So many people are getting cars for Christmas with big giant bows in the driveway. And this never happened to me and probably will never happen to me and probably never happened to most of you. Um, that's Hopefully that's not your plan this Wednesday for an extravagant gift like that. Maybe dinner was ruined. Maybe uh, you couldn't be with your family. Maybe you didn't have enough money to buy the gifts that you wanted to give or you didn't get the gift that you wanted to get. Um, maybe maybe even worse in, in the way that Christmas didn't go as you expected, all the family did get together and dinner was just fine. But then an argument, a fight, and tension, and just a horrible, horrible memory because Christmas didn't turn out the way that you hoped it would. I remember a time when I was a teenager. I wish I was much younger, but I was a teenager, and I Christmas did not go the way that I wanted it to go. I, uh, our family tradition it ha- was always that we opened one cr- gift on Christmas Eve, and then the rest of them on Christmas Day. And so the Christmas Eve gift was really the first gift of Christmas, and it was it better be a good one, right? It better not be socks. It better not be something that is uh, unusable at this moment. I want it to be something I can, you know, do something with right now. And I remember this Christmas, I, I was given 
uh, the, it was a it was a video tape. It was a VHS of the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas, and that's probably my favorite Christmas movie. And the Dr. Seuss version, not the not the Hollywood version of it. And I loved watching that, and I was so excited. This was going to be great. This was the great gift. This was fantastic. Mom did a great job uh, giving that gift, and so I started watching it. And, and if you're a fan of the movie, you know uh, all of the, the little scenes that are in there. But all of a sudden, something horrible happened in my movie. As I was watching it, the Grinch was plotting to destroy the Who's Christmas. And if you remember the VHS, you got all those blurry lines and then all of a sudden he was carving the roast beast. And it skipped the whole movie. The movie was, was, was warped. It was twisted. It was, it was broken. So I rewound it and was trying to figure out what's going on. And, and, and sadly came to the realization that this movie was, was a dud. This was not going to be what I wanted it to be. And to my shame, I threw a fit. And, I, and I, was, I was taking it out on my parents and taking it out on, on everything because this Christmas was ruined and it hadn't even gotten started yet. And eventually I had to go and apologize and humble myself and admit that I had been a big baby. When we look at the first Christmas in Luke 2, we see that it did not turn out quite as expected either. Now, last Sunday, we considered the question, do we really need Christmas? And we looked in Genesis 3 and what follows through the rest of the Scriptures, and we find the answer is a resounding yes, we desperately need Christmas. In fact, all of the Old Testament saints agreed we desperately need Christmas. Not that we need lights and tinsel and trees and presents and and, and cookies and all of those things. When the Old Testament saints thought of Christmas, or their, what they would have thought of the event of Christmas, they weren't even thinking of the word Christmas, which hadn't been invented yet. Uh, they weren't thinking of getting together with family. They weren't thinking of, of exchanging gifts with people. They weren't thinking of the holiday season as we think of it. No, the, the, they were thinking of the coming of the Messiah. They were thinking of the anointed one who had been promised in Genesis and all throughout the Scriptures finally coming. This is their idea of Christmas. And they believed, yes, we need this. And they waited and they longed for His arrival. Ever since the promise of the, uh, in Genesis of the One who would crush the serpent's head, uh, God's people have waited for this One to come. I want to just, uh, you can write down the references. I just want to read several quickly just to give you a sense of uh, the waiting that, that it, they, these people experienced. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And they got this, this, as Moses translated this to the people, they began to understand that this coming one would be a prophet from among them. There were also prophecies that this one who would come would be a shepherd and a king. In Numbers 24, it's uh, 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The prophet Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, 
from ancient days. He wrote again in, 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 uh, in a few verses later that he shall stand and shepherd his flock on the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Even through the Psalms, God's people sang and waited and anticipated for a Messiah who would become a victorious king and an eternal priest. Psalm 16 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. The 110th Psalm says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, all of these are uh, related. The, the, the people of Israel understood that all of these scriptures pointed to this coming Messiah. And there are many, many more. I, I only just gave a, a very small sampling of, of, of the Old Testament uh, mentions and, and longings for this coming Messiah. But as time passed and as more prophecies were given and as more understanding was made, the, the people, God's people who were waiting would compare these prophecies and they would connect them to older ones and, and really began to form an expectation of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would be like. And it was still a mystery to them. We have much more clarity on this side of, of Christmas uh, than they did, but People's uh, understanding was it was varied. People knew some. People knew a little less. Uh, as we read the actual Christmas accounts, we find that when uh, when Herod asked the the, the, the priests about uh, this 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 king of Israel, they knew exactly where he was going to be born. They they read the accounts. They knew it was going to be in Bethlehem. Uh, when when uh, we're going to read in Luke one, uh, these these people that that knew of the birth of Messiah, that it was imminent, uh, knew exactly what all of this uh, had to do with the prophecies. They had a lot of information pointing them towards an understanding of who Messiah would be, and because of this, they began to put into their minds. This is what it's going to be like. This is the expectation that we have. We do the same thing with every event. We, as, as something approaches and we begin to look forward to it, we begin to anticipate it, we begin to build up this vision of what we hope it will be or what we think it will be. And as we get into Luke's Gospel, which we're just a chapter uh, or two into it, as we get to this, uh, the portion that I want to really try to drive us toward, as we read Luke's Gospel, I want you to understand that it had been about 400 years since any prophecies had been given about this Messiah. It was known as the silent years. God had, it seemed as if we compare it to the previous 400 years, God had been very chatty about who the Messiah was going to be. And now, nothing. Nothing. No one has heard from God. No one has, 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 has heard any prophecies. No one has heard at all about this Messiah. And they only have these previous promises to rely on. But it was also a dark time as we begin into Luke because uh, Israel is no longer a sovereign nation. Israel is no longer this, this powerful uh, uh, nation that, that, that rules over the rest of the region as they had done so in the days of David and Solomon. Now they're under Roman rule. Now they're being oppressed and they're being occupied and being controlled by foreign nations. But now finally, 400 years have passed and God breaks the silence. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, and we see that 
Uh, and if we, if we, I won't read everything there. There's, there's quite a bit of verses there, but I just want to show you a few of the places where we see this, uh, this, this news has been broke. Uh, the silence is broken, and the news is now given. The angel comes to Mary, and he explains to her in verse 31: "Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High." And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we, we, we hadn't, I hadn't planned to go into this section, but if you read Mary's response to this, her, the, what we call the Magnificat, it is a collection of understanding of various Old Testament prophecies. As Mary begins to put all of these little tidbits of truth together in, in, in resulting in praise to God. The angel, before he had come to Mary, had visited uh, Zechariah, who would be uh, Mary's uh, relative there. And, and, and Zechariah was told that he would uh, have a son, and his name was to be John, and he was going to be the forerunner of, of the Messiah. Then we see that Mary visits her, 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 her cousin Elizabeth there, and, and we find that John is born, and uh, Mary sings her song. And chapter 1 ends with Zechariah breaking his own nine-month silence, uh, and in praise to God, when Zechariah was told that he would have a son, he doubted because he was too old. And uh, the angel said, you won't speak then until he is born and this will be the sign. This is how you'll know. But as, as uh, the baby is born and, and uh, Zechariah's lips are loosed, he uh, gives praise to God. And in verse number 68, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has Notice, he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And he goes on and says many things. This was at the birth of his own son, but he knew that this son of his was not the, the Messiah. He was the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, but in great anticipation because he knew how long his people had been waiting for this day to come. He knew it was just around the corner and he, and he, and he gives, and he gives great praise to God that God was coming. And he says there, God has visited and redeemed his people in verse number 68. And these, this last Sunday and this Sunday and the next Sunday, considering this idea of God visiting uh, earth or God coming to earth when God comes to earth. And we saw the first time in Genesis when God came to earth to promise redemption. Now this second time, uh, Zechariah is, is recognizing that God is about to come back. In fact, he says it as if God has already done it. God has visited and redeemed His people in bringing the Messiah to us. And then in verse number 78, I, uh, Zechariah describes this coming as, of, of God as the sunrise that shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Things are looking really, really good right now. Things are looking up. And this is shaping up to be a glorious first Christmas. But as we know, they didn't know yet, but as we know because we read the story, Many, many times, the Messiah did not come in the way that was expected. In fact, he came in a most unusual way. 
We get into chapter number 2, and we're not going to walk through every one of these verses. In fact, I'm going to skip down to verse number 8, where Garrett began to read for us. We find in verses 1-7 through the birth of Christ, and we focus on the shepherds a little bit this morning. In chapter 2 and verse 8, we find that there's a group of shepherds that were out in the countryside feeding their sheep, tending to them, protecting them from the animals that would have uh, eaten them. It's dark, it's quiet. It's a routine night. Suddenly, verse number 9, an angel appears to them with exciting news. Now, if you you go through it and document every time an angel visits a person, most of the time it results in great fear. They're very very afraid because angels are very impressive uh, impressive beings. And and the the people that that see these angels are very afraid and and fear for their lives very much. And these these shepherds are no different. But he he says to them there in verse number uh, 10, he says, don't be afraid. Fear not. There's no reason to be afraid because the reason that I have come is a good thing. This is a joyous thing. This is a positive. There's no reason to be afraid. You're not in trouble. You're not going to die. He says, fear not, because he brings good news of great joy. This word, or this phrase, I bring you good news, is actually one word. It's, it's, it's you, uh, euangelizo. And it's, and it's literally, he's saying, I evangelize to you good news. We get our word gospel from this. I give you the gospel. I give you good news. What is the good news? Well, this good news is about great joy for all people. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. If we, if we skip uh, down into uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse number uh, 30, Simeon, uh, who was at the temple when Jesus was presented to uh, in the temple for part of his uh, the, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, ceremonies and things. Simeon was there, and, and, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. But he said in verse number 30, my, he's holding Jesus in his arms, and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And that's what the angels were saying, that this good news of great joy is not just for Israel. It's going to be for all people. And what is this good news? And this is where I, I want to get us to this morning to consider these two verses, verses 11 and verse number 12, and consider the extreme difference in what they, what they both present. He says, unto you is born this day indicating that the long arrival has finally ended. What they have waited for for so long has finally come to fulfillment. Today, born today, in the city of David, notice the first thing, a Savior. Now Mary was told when the angel visited her that she was to call this baby's name Jesus, which means, his name means Savior, to to deliver or to rescue the people, Joseph even, in Matthew, when the angel visited him, he was, said, he was told, you're going to call this baby Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now the Old Testament had taught throughout uh, that God was going to save his people from their enemies. And, and I won't read them all to you, but I just want to back up and, and read what I just read to you a moment ago from Zechariah to see that he understood that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah was going to be a Savior. In verse 68 again, he says that the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed His people. In verse 69, He has raised up the horn of salvation for us. Notice 
as he spoke in verse 70 by the mouth of his holy prophets. This is what the prophets told us from long ago, that this is what he would do, that, he would, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy, again, a reminder, the mercy that was promised to our fathers. And he spoke of the holy covenant there that, that was sworn to Abraham that they enjoy. So this is something that the Old Testament had, had, had been very clear about. When the Messiah comes, He will be the Savior. Later on in Jesus' life, towards the end of His life, when He rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, uh, the people cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And by doing that, they were saying, save us. That's what the word Hosanna means. It means save us. And they were quoting from the Psalms that read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. This is what they, they recognize. Here's the Savior. Here's the One who's coming to save us, to deliver us, and to rescue us. And the angel tells the shepherds, here is the One, and He's coming. He is born today. He is a Savior. But also, He is the Christ. Now, when we read the word Christ, this, is, this comes from a Greek word that is a translation of a Hebrew word, okay? So, uh, to understand that, the, the word Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah in, in Hebrew. So, when we talk about the Christ and the Messiah, we're talking about the same, the same title. We're talking about the same person. Jesus the Christ, and it's used so often together that people think that that's Jesus' last name. And that's not, that's the title, that's who He is. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He is the promised one, the promised anointed one by God. That's what Messiah uh, would be, the, the anointed one. And this is the one that they've been waiting for. And so now the shepherds are being told by this angel, uh, the one who is born today is the Savior. He is the Savior of the world has been promised. Not only that, He is the anointed one sent by God. He is the Messiah, which indicates that He is going to be the King of Israel. He's going to be the ruler. This is the one who's going to usher in this glorious kingdom for the people. But that's not all. Because then he says he's, he's the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Now, most of the time when I read through this, I've read through this maybe a thousand times as growing up with Christmases and growing up in a Christian home and reading Christ the Lord. But this word Lord is, is a specific word as well. It's an important word. Because the word Lord here, again, is a Greek word for a Hebrew word. This word Lord is not just a title this is what they use to describe God Himself. The word Yahweh, the divine name of God. When we read the Lord, we're reading that Jesus is God. He is the divine uh, being. He is Yahweh. He's not just the one who is anointed by God. He is actually God Himself. He's not an angel. He's not an ambassador. He is actually God Himself coming to you, born to you in David's city. So when the angel is describing this great day, he says, there's coming to you a Savior. He is the Christ. He is God Himself. Now the shepherds had been terrified when the angel appeared to them, but now they were about to be very surprised at what the angel would tell them next. Not that, not that who was in Bethlehem, not that who was born. I think this was what they were expecting. 
But the angel has just described the, the good news of great joy in, in the greatest possible way, using the, 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 the greatest possible terms that he could use to describe this baby born, the kingly Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and God Himself. But the glorious Savior in Christ and Lord is a baby not in a palace, but in a manger. And that's what he says there in verse number 12. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. It's very possible that night there would have been other babies born in Bethlehem. How were they going to find which one was the Savior, Christ the Lord? Swaddling clothes weren't necessarily something that was unique to this baby. There could have been other babies wrapped in swaddling cloths. But to find a baby lying in a manger, truly that is unique. When you go and look for him, Understand that He won't be the one you think He is. Don't look in the palace. Don't look in the, 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 the expensive hotels. Don't look in, in, the, in the homes of the, of the powerful and rich people. Look in the stable. Look in the manger. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. And He is God incarnate. And you'll find Him in Bethlehem. You'll find Him as a baby. You'll find Him wrapped in swaddling clothes. But you'll find Him lying in a manger. And the angel described Jesus now who He really is as the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. But then surprised them by telling Him how they were going to find Him. Because that was not what they would have expected. One of the early 4th century church fathers wrote that He found no room in the Holy of Holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk and silver. He's not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung in a stable where our sins were filthier than the dumb. And this is where God comes to earth. It truly must have seemed a strange way to save the world. To the shepherds, to Mary and Joseph, to anybody who heard the story, why would God come like this? This is not what we expected. And truthfully, the whole story of redemption is not written in the way that we would expect it. It's not written in the way that we would have written it. Our first parents tried to write the story of redemption. When they realized they had sinned, what did they do? They made themselves aprons. They tried to cover their shame with leaves because man's way is to save himself or at least have some part in earning it. Man's way would have brought redemption immediately after the promise had been given. Not waiting for Thousands of years to pass in between. Man's way would have brought salvation from physical need. Financial problems. National troubles. Not so much the spiritual. And really, we find the struggle that people had in, in accepting Jesus as the Messiah when they realized He's not here to cast off the Roman oppression. He's not here to make Israel the great nation that it used to be. He's here for a different purpose. And when they realized that, many of them rejected Him. They, they, they ceased following from Him. This was not man's way. This was God's way. He whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose ways are much higher than our own, chose to send His only Son to parents of no great means, no great importance, his birth wasn't announced. 
to kings and nobles, but to lowly shepherds. He was not laid in the lap of luxury and comfort, but in a manger filled with hay. And yet this was God's way. This was the best way. Alistair Begg, when I, when I uh, he wrote a book called The Christmas Playlist, and in there he wrote that God works in a way that we might not anticipate him working. And we have to allow him to surprise us, to be different than a God we would make up, and to work differently than how we would if we were God. This is the purpose of Christmas. This is the reason why he came. The song just sung is amazing how he came because it wasn't how we thought it should be. There were no fanfares, no bright lights for all to see, but just a few lowly shepherds. But in the way he came, God fulfilled the promise that he made back in Genesis to bring a redeemer. And at Christmas time, God came to earth and fulfilled the promise to bring a redeemer coming himself. I like what, again, when an old writer, John Calvin, wrote. He says that whenever our salvation is mentioned, we should understand that a signal has been given as if the trumpet were sounding to awake us, to excite us to thanksgiving and to the praises of God. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Believers of God's promises throughout time had waited and waited and waited for the promise to be fulfilled. Now the fullness of time had come. And God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Think about that. The eternal word who was with God, who was God, who was in the beginning with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, Calvin writes that let us remember then the final cause why God reconciled us to himself through his only begotten son. It was that he might glorify his name by revealing the riches of his grace and of his boundless mercy. So this Christmas, I invite you to give thanks to the God who promised redemption and brought it to us in his own time and in his own way through his own son. And then let us rejoice in the wondrous mystery of God's perfect redemption plan. It was brought to us in a child lying in a manger. <laughs>